Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word. We know that there are so many riches in here, and we pray that you would just open it up. Give us understanding with this wrath that you talk about and producing fruit in keeping with righteousness. May we be doing your will as we learn your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I gave you questions last week, six questions, after looking at the text, verse 7 in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8. And I didn't quite finish verse 7, so I'm just going to give you a little review on that. The questions were, what is this coming wrath? Because there is this wrath, this coming wrath, I'm going to read it here, Matthew chapter 3, or 7, excuse me, 3 verse 7, and we'll make it to the end of the chapter today. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come or the coming wrath? And so he makes reference to this particular event. And it's not a singular event. There is a couple of phases to it. And verse 8 says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So he's making a comparison and a contrast. He's looking at this, okay, the brood of vipers who are uh, trying to flee the coming wrath, if indeed they are. And then there's those who have fruit in keeping with repentance. So we have the fear of wrath and we have the fruit of repentance. So we, I talked about the coming wrath. What is the coming wrath? And God's wrath is a punishment for practice of sin by the disobedient. <clears throat> I just went through on my audio Bible, I just went through all the history books and I can't, and I listened to him almost in, at one time. How many times God said, just do this and I will bless you and you'll have no enemies in peace on every side. And your fields will be full of fruit and your wombs will be blessed and you'll have a good life if you just follow the commandments. How many times did they break commandments? You know, out of the, depending on who you read, there were either 44 or 47 kings from both the northern Israel kingdom and Judah to the south. Remember, it split after Solomon because God judged the nation of Israel. And to the north went Jeroboam and to the south went Rehoboam and he had one of the tribes with him. And God set up these different kings to come through. To the north, all the kings were wicked. Every one of them. There's like 20 or 21 kings in the northern kingdom. Every single one of them was a disobedient idolater. And God judged them over and over and over. Remember Elijah? Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Remember what he did? The prophets of Baal, and you had Mount Carmel, and he said, the prophets of Baal, uh, 400 or 450 of them, go ahead and set up your idol and put your rocks in the sacrifice which is going to be there and have your God come down and consume it with fire. And he taunted them. They lasted all day. They were cutting themselves. And then at the end of the day, he goes, where is your God? Is he a little too busy? What's he doing? And in the uh, New Living Translation, it says, Where is he? On the toilet? You know, something like he just went right to them and was taunting them. And then God came down, consumed the sacrifice that Elijah had set up. And from that point, they killed the prophets of Baal. And it was just an incredible thing. But they were wicked. There was the son, uh, for instance, let me, maybe there's somebody who knows this. You have, who's the first king of Israel? Saul, that's right. First king of Israel 
is Saul. Who's the second king of Israel? Who's the second king of Israel? Ishbosheth. Yes. It's Ishbosheth. You know, and I, after going through the audio on that, I go, wait, did I miss something? You hit that back a couple 30 seconds. Oh, let me hear that again. It's right. Ishbosheth was the son. But his name is translated differently because in some of the texts it says, uh, I want to say it right, Ishbo Baal. Saul's son was a follower of Baal. And he's the one that was going to be raised up to be king and he was a worshiper of an idol is what it was. This was with uh, Israel at the time. And then there was a conflict. Abner was the king of the guard and he was a cousin to Saul. And Abner ended up giving everything over to David at that time. David ruled at Hebron for seven and a half years. And just the history is just fascinating to look in that how God moved around all of these kings. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there were about eight kings that did right in the eyes of the Lord. One of them was bad, and then he repented and he became good. But eight kings out of about 19 kings. So out of all of those kings, somewhere between 44 and maybe 47 total of the kings that were there, very few of them did what was right, and God came in with his wrath and judge them. The Assyrians would come in and they would stick this ring in their, either their nose or the bottom lip. And they'd tie a rope, a small rope to it. And they'd be on their horses and they'd pull the people, the Israelites, they'd pull them behind. And if you didn't keep up, guess what happened to your lip? You got a split lip. And that was just some of the things. They, God enabled the judgment, the wrath to come upon the nation of Israel where they killed the young, the old, the infirmed, and the pregnant women ran them through with swords. And God said, this is a judgment on you because you failed to do what is right. And repeatedly, over and over and over, they kept on falling into sin. God would rescue them, have compassion on them, and bring them back out. I mean, that's one of the themes in the Old Testament. It's just incredible to see that. And it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. And I talked about this last week, why the wrath of God is coming. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. And it gives this list of things. Sexual immorality, all kinds of impurity, greed, uh, which are improper for God's people. Cussing, foolish talk coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving is what we should have. No immoral person or greedy person, such as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. And verse 6 says, for because of such things, God's wrath are coming upon those who are disobedient. Now, also, when I was doing some uh, reading on the history of the United States, when the Puritans came over and what they were doing, when things weren't going well, the one group of Puritans that survived realized they may have been doing something wrong. So they fasted and they prayed and they humbled themselves and God healed them, so to speak, metaphorically. And he enabled their colony to remain established. He set everything up for them because they were in fact doing things out of selfishness and yet they were trying to glorify God but everything was directed towards self. And when you look at the founding of this country, like for instance, uh, 9-11, Recall 9-11, when that took place, it was horrible. The churches were open at that time. People came and we prayed, not only this church, but thousands of churches across the United States. We prayed for the people. And the question was asked at that time, 
what is it that we have done to deserve this? Now, do bad things just happen? Well, on the human side, yeah, bad things just happen. What about on God's side? Is there an accident? No such thing. Everybody who is here is not here by accident, even though you think we had an accident. You know, that's not true. No one is an accident. There is nothing of a calamitous nature that takes place to us as a country that is outside the purview of God's providence. God determines these things. And what happened to us? Well, we kind of repented. We said, God, we need to get in line. You know, there's this movie back in 1950. James Whitmore and Nancy Reagan. The title of the movie is The Next Thing You Hear. Now, if you haven't seen it, I remember seeing this as a kid. It's it's a great movie. So James Whitmore, he's sitting in his chair, and he's listening to the radio. He had just finished the dishes, and he, he gets in his chair, and he's listening, and he's waiting for this next show to come on. And his wife, Nancy Reagan is in the other room with the son doing homework, and she's knitting, dutifully so. And the little boy, he's carrying out the job with the homework. And so it cuts from him sitting in the chair to Nancy Reagan, and then there's silence on the radio. James Whitmore walks in, and he's real calm, and he goes, you know, something weird just happened, because the announcer was on the radio, and then it just went silent. And he said, you know, I was... uh, listening to the radio, and it went silent. There was a funny noise. And then the radio said, this is God. I'll be with you for a few days. And then it went right back in the middle of the song that was supposed to be playing. And he came in and he told Nancy Reagan, if you've seen the movie, for the next six days at 8.30, God speaks on the radio. And everybody, by the time the seventh day comes, everybody is gathered in church and they have the radio on up at the lectern area here and they're waiting at 8.30 and guess what happens? Nothing. Absolutely nothing happens because God labored for six days and on the seventh day he rested, but the church was full. It's it's a great movie. You got to see this movie. And they were called to do what was right in the movie. And you could tell no one was going to church or really paying attention. They had their own lives to live. But God called them to get into the church. That's the point of the movie. Well, you go in the Bible, it's the same thing. God calls us to live a particular way, to make sure we're living an upright life as a result of our conversion, of our confession to him, of our acceptance of the plan of salvation. So that is why the wrath of God is coming. Is there anything we can do to stop it? The answer is simply no, but we can escape the final wrath and judgment of God by simply believing in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and we become disciples. John chapter 5 verse 24 says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned under the wrath of God, under the judgment of God. He has crossed over from death to life. So that is the criteria, that is the mark that is necessary to be achieved, simply belief in Jesus Christ. He is the one who rescues us from the coming wrath, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. Now, to whom is this wrath coming, or who is it dedicated to? There's going to be a judgment, and I didn't mention this last week, but the judgment, there's two sides to the judgment, or two points in the judgment. 
On the one hand, you have the judgment of the believer. That is us. Each one of us are going to be alone. Everybody's going to be around, but God's going to call us by name. Like, he'll turn to me and say, you, Bill. I go, yikes. And I, you know, I'm going to, yes, Lord. (laughs) Whatever you want, Lord, I'm here. Lord willing, I'm there, right? I'm trusting in him. I'll be there. And he's going to say, give an account. Well, Lord, I'm going to blow it. I've I've totally blown it in my life. I haven't been perfect. I've done this. I've done that. And it's only by your grace that I'm even standing here. And he's going to turn to me, as with all of you, and he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And he'll tell you about your inheritance. You know, give him a crown. All these angels will flutter in. They'll come down and give you a crown on your head. And the crowd will go. Ah. It will be just a fantastic time. There'll be hallelujah singing. Not just for me, for you too. Each one of us will take our turn where we have to give an account to God alone. Right? And then there's a time the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 21 where the dead in Christ who have died in the millennium and during the tribulation, well, the tribulation period, they get resurrected at the end of the tribulation period and rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years according to Revelation chapter 20 verse 4. After that happens, the great white throne judgment after a thousand years, heaven and earth disappear, God is going, Jesus is going to be on his throne And the books are going to be opened. And whoever's name is not found written in the book of life is condemned to the lake of fire. That is what is going to take place. And so the second judgment is the great white throne judgment for those who died in the millennial reign that are believers. They'll enter their glory. But for all the rest of humanity that has rejected God, they go to the lake of fire, which we'll get into in a minute here. So the nature of this wrath, and I just said the lake of fire, the, the nature of this wrath which is going to come upon those who believe. Now, there is this doctrine of total annihilation. The doctrine of total annihilation basically states that our God is a loving God, therefore, he will not condemn to hell, suffering, punishment forever and ever anyone, that they will just cease to exist. That's the doctrine of total annihilation. It is not true. Scripture says in two places that this punishment is eternal or everlasting. I gave you this verse last week, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, that some will be raised to eternal life and some to eternal Shame or contempt is what they'll be raised to. They'll, they'll carry the shame forever. And there are degrees in hell of that suffering. If you've been particularly wicked, the suffering is going to be great. If you haven't been so quote-unquote wicked, you've been like, he's a good person, but he never accepted Christ, the suffering may not be so egregious, but there are going to be different sections in hell of this suffering. And so this place is likened to a lake of fire. Now, is it going to be a lake of fire? Now, my personal view is, I don't think it's a lake of fire. At least it's not going to be a fire like we know. And when you look at a lake of fire, if you were thrown into a lake of fire, 
what would happen to you? What would it be like? What would you experience? You'd experience pain and suffering. And remember who he's writing to here. He's writing to people, and this is in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this was written about 95 A.D. The persecution of the church was beginning to take place, and there are several people that were burned at the stake. If you saw somebody burning at the stake, what would you think? That's real suffering right there. And what they're experiencing nobody should have to experience. And so if this lake of fire is real, and there's a possibility it could be real, but Revelation has some funny language in it, and you just want to make sure you don't take that leap immediately when you look at it. So whatever it is, if it's a lake of fire or not a lake of fire, there's going to be tremendous suffering because it is, quote-unquote, a lake of fire. And this word for hell is Gehenna. Gehenna is the section that is east of, of the eastern wall of Jerusalem. And it's where they, it's, it's in the area of the Kidron Valley. And it's where they would throw their trash and they would light fires on the trash. And sometimes bodies would be thrown there. And so the people that this is being written to or that would read it who know about Jerusalem, he would be talking about the Valley of Gehenna where the fire is burning all the time and they would see that burning so they'd have a real picture of what the lake of fire was like. Going on with this, it says it will never go out. In Mark chapter 9, verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. So this is a lake of fire that never goes out that portends the coming punishment, which is forever. And some people, it begs the question, why would God not just destroy the people? And the answer is, I believe, we are created in the image of God. And that's a holy thing to God. And he will not destroy that image. And so we would like it to be that way, but God is a righteous God. He will not look upon... Like King David. Remember King David? He had the chance to kill Saul on a couple of occasions. One time it says that he went into a cave... And way back in the cave, David was in there with his men, and the cave was deep down in there. And it says, Saul went in, and quote-unquote, went in to relieve himself. Some people say to take a nap. Others say it was to relieve himself. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. But David went up to him, and his buddies were telling him, Go ahead, you got him now. You can kill him. He's in here all alone. And he goes, far be it for me to kill the Lord's anointed. And so he cut off a corner of his robe when he was in there, because it's completely dark. And David could see. Saul couldn't really see. He could have been sleeping there, you know, to have this happen. And then as Saul exits the cave and he stands out there, David comes out and says, King Saul, see, I could have taken your life, but by the God that I serve, I would not touch the Lord's anointed. And this is Bill's paraphrase, the new Bill version that's there. And he would not touch the Lord's anointed, but he was cut to the heart because he even cut the robe of the Lord's anointed. Because the Lord's hand was on it, and we are created in the image of God. So how much more would God say, I'm not going to touch that image. That image is holy to God, even though it's going to be suffering forever. And that's why God says, you know, it's going to last, or it's going to be everlasting. Now, there, 
is also going to be in Matthew chapter 13, verse 49, weeping and gnashing of teeth, which represents sorrow, deep, heartfelt sorrow. The weeping that is expressed here is a weeping that is almost uncontrollable that you, you do not have the ability to pull it back. Like, for instance, if you see a really good, as a man, you see a really good movie as a man, and you get all this choked up on the inside, you go, I'm not crying. And you hold it. You know, it's just not going to happen there. It's, that's not weeping, right? You're feeling sad. You want the emotion to come out, you know, something like that. But it, it won't come out, and you hold it back. The weeping is you cannot hold it back. It is just flowing. It's like you lose the dearest thing that you've ever had in your life and you're weeping and you're wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, <clears throat> how would you express gnashing? What, what's gnashing of teeth? Can you give me an example? Sleepless nights. S- sleep, that's right. How would you do it visibly? Visibly, how would you do that? How would you show gnashing of teeth? Would you put some emotion into it? Would you go? Would you do that? No, you wouldn't. How would you do it? In full agony. You're going, oh! You, you, that's gnashing of teeth. It's not, it's gnashing, it's weeping, and it's gnashing of teeth. That is going to represent, and I think there will be gnashing of teeth and weeping but it's representing the anguish on the inside of the mistake the person has made. And there's no way to redeem it. God says, this is it. This is final. We make our choice while we're alive. After that, Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. There is no do-over. There is no Groundhog Day. You don't get to repeat it over and over and over. It's a straight line. And so there's going to be a lake of fire, suffering, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, and it is going to be forever. I quoted you earlier this verse, but I didn't read it. Matthew twenty-five forty-six. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So how can we know that we have escaped this? First of all, you have to have a healthy fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if if we fear him, and I mean in a fearful way, that's one way, and a fearful way as far as respect is concerned. Some people like to muddy that down. That's not what scripture is saying. Scripture says, fear the Lord. Why? Because of punishment. That's real. How many churches or how many television broadcasts have you seen that really talk about that? Now, there's a few pastors out there. And as I said last week, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone pastor. I, I want to inform everybody of what God has to say. I can accept the information and I can make a decision and act from that. But there are some pastors, like for instance, um, Paul Washer. If you guys are familiar with Paul Washer, he is a reformed pastor and you know he's, he's good. I mean, there's some stuff that he says, it's just like good. But boy, he's a pulpit pounder on some issues. And he actually pounds 
the pulpit. He lets people know that going to hell. He just slams that thing and go, whoa, man. Having people feel condemned. And I don't know if he wants to gin up the emotion in them apart from the intellect. And there's no question there's emotion when we follow God. There is. But he pounds it as much as he can. But this, this idea that we would escape the coming wrath first by fear, that's good. But also by love. God saves many by love. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And for one, the love is enough. For the other, it takes a little condemnation and wrath. And so whatever it takes, however somebody gets saved, whether somebody is destined for hell and they need to repent, or somebody can come into the loving arms of the Savior, either one is acceptable, but both are the best. Because we will learn to fear God and keep his commandments and we will learn of his loving kindness towards us. And in the history of Israel and the repentance that they displayed, God showed his loving kindness over and over and over and over. And it was a fantastic thing to go through listening to that just one time, all of those history books. So we want to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So there's good fruit and there's bad fruit. How do I recognize the fruit of the kingdom of God within me or that I'm living in the midst of it? Remember, I already talked about the kingdom of God. It's in our midst. Well, it's inside of us. God is ruling in our hearts and that's where the kingdom is established. It's not a place that you go. It's not in Israel right now. It's nowhere to be had. It's certainly in heaven, but it's nowhere on the earth except in our hearts. So God is ruling in our hearts. Well, what kind of good fruit would we have? Of course, if you know Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, those are listed there. And it, it talks about the good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. For those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And so we have this fruit that is displayed. And the book of John talks about the fruit, and every person or every bush that bears good fruit, God prunes it, so it will produce more fruit. And he keeps on pruning us, so more fruit will be evident. We'll have this fruit of love, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, all of these gentleness, and all these things will be evident in our lives. Are we going to be angry sometime? Yeah. Are we going to be full of fits of rage sometimes? Yeah. Like driving. Are, are there going to be other issues that are going to come up that are going to be of the flesh? Yes. But that's where we crucify every day the flesh. So what's the bad fruit? The bad fruit is related to us in Galatians again, in verse 19 of the same chapter. It's talked about in terms of the flesh or the sinful nature. It says they are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, which is drug use. That's what it is. You know, California is now a uh, 420 friendly state. For those of you who know the number 420, it refers to uh, marijuana, that you can use that freely. And most of the states are going to end up going that way. I say the whole country is, even though it's a federal offense to do that. And that recreational drug use of marijuana, which is referred to here as witchcraft, which also includes heroin, which also includes 
fentanyl, which also includes prescription drugs if you're just taking them to take them and you're not using it in a medicinal fashion. That's where the rub comes with marijuana, right? I, I need it. I need, I need the pot to make me feel better, man. No, don't do that. God says don't. Don't go down that road because those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these things that are listed here, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So that's not an exhaustive list. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 goes on to say, Do not be deceived. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the person that's living like this saying, God will forgive me of this. God is a gracious God. He's a loving God. He will just forget all of this. No, that's not the case according to Scripture. If somebody has a point to make about that, I would love to talk to you later, but Scripture is very clear. These attitudes and behaviors that people get involved in in this life, he says, if you live like this and you think it's okay, you're deceived, and you think you're going to heaven, and you're not. That's going to be a big surprise. Even the sheep and the goats that is listed in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, as we'll get there, they, they think, well, we did everything that was right. When did we not do what was right? And the goats are condemned where the sheep are saved. And so we want to do a self-examination, like Paul says, examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. First Timothy 1, 9 and 10 says, For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. For it is for people who are lawless, rebellious, who are ungodly, sinful, and consider nothing sacred, and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother, or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral, who practice homosexuality, or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, and who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching of the Word of God. And so we have it spelled out for us in several different areas. What the works of the flesh are, if we live according to that, we will die, even if we think we are saved. So God calls us to repent of that. And it was... A problem for the Jews because they thought that all of that didn't matter. As long as they just carried out their rituals and they were a son of Abraham, they came from the line of Abraham, they would get into heaven. And remember, in the context here, John the Baptist is teaching. There's probably hundreds or thousands of people around. The Pharisees show up. They want to hear what John the Baptist has to say because many people consider him a prophet. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And so he's talking like that in the midst of this, and they're probably all smug, just going... We know we're doing right. We carry out everything we're supposed to in the temple. We're all good. And we came from Abraham, John says. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abram or Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So they were relying on their association their relationship, and their ritual. They would put those two things together and say, this is what gets us into heaven. Now let's bring that to us. What do you think gets you to heaven? Do you think it's been the works that you do? Do you think it's been your associates? 
You go to church and, yeah, I know that guy, he's a Christian. I know that woman, he, she's a Christian. I know that family, oh yeah, they're Christian, they follow Christ. And I'm with, we're buds, right? If you have no relationship with Jesus Christ, it's still not going to get you into heaven. I hang out with them because they're good people. I, I remember going uh, past my college years and in, in that time, uh, some family members would say, oh, they're good people. You'd go over to Hawaii, oh, good people. There's no such thing as a good person. No such thing. There's only one who is good, and we know who that is. That's Jesus Christ. But we think we're good by our associations or our ritual. You know, I give a little here and there. <clears throat> I throw some in the offering plate, and I help the homeless, and, you know, I, I donate this money over here, and uh, Red Cross, you know, and all of that, home and guiding hands. And I, I just give. You know, that's my habit. doesn't get you there. So many people are so confused about that. The only thing gets us into heaven is Jesus Christ. After that, the works flow as a natural result, like a fruit tree. No tree can bear bad fruit. If you have good fruit, well, what's the good fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, right? But what else is with that? Putting your hand to the plow. When Jesus gave that analogy, you put your hand to the plow, guess what it is? Work. When we went to Africa... I saw a boy, he, he looked like he must have been 10 years old. He was behind two oxen with this plow, and his father was tall, over six foot, and he was a ways away, but I could see him, and his father had a whip. It was for the cows, and he's whipping the cows, the oxen, like that, to get him to plow, and the little boy, the handles are here, and he's pulling that thing along. And you could tell, his, and we're driving slowly by, and you could tell the fathers, he's, he's hitting the cows to get him to go, and he's talking to his son, okay, now keep it straight, whatever he's telling him, and he's just, he keeps on going, he's keeping his eye focused forward. And so we're doing something, we're not just simply, I believe, you know, I have associates, I've done a few things, we're not going to get there. Going on, so that's our comparison today, but we want it to permeate ourselves. We don't want to rely on the association or the apprehension and acclamation of good works, you know, the people we know, the things that we do. We want to make sure it permeates everything. Remember the book In His Steps, WWJD, they had the bracelets that they sold for those? Well, are you letting Christ influence why you live where you do? Where you live or excuse me, where you work? And why you work there? Why you eat and what you eat? Are you letting Christ influence why you study and what you study? What you watch and why you watch it? Why you relax and when you relax? Are you letting Christ influence why and what you speak and when you speak? All of these things are to be filtered through Jesus. That's what's being part of the kingdom of God. Most of the time, we just live our lives. Okay, I'm going to church on Sunday. I have to go to church on Sunday. I have to go to church on Sunday. Listen to that guy. Is that how you look at it? Or is it, I get to. I get to be a witness for Christ. I get to go to work because I'm going to be a witness to the people who are there. And you have to get a little uncomfortable. That's no big deal. You know, I won't get fired for it. I just, I just try to be a witness for Christ. Everything influences our lives. It's supposed to as disciples of Jesus. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. And, and I'm going to run out of time here, and it goes on to the baptism. 
So this fruit of repentance, we want to make sure everybody sees it. When you go up to a fruit tree, now sometimes on a fruit tree, the fruit is the same color as the leaves. And sometimes it's not. This one place I take care of, the owners that are there, they wanted a lemon tree. It's a Johnson lemon. And you know, it, it has the perfect environment. It gets the perfect water. It gets the perfect fertilizer. They look after it really well, and I do my part. And you look at this little dwarf lemon tree, and it is just packed with yellow lemons. I mean, just there are as many lemons on that tree as there are leaves. When somebody sees your life, be a lemon tree. Be a Johnson lemon tree that's getting the right amount of fertilizer, the right amount of water, and you are so heavy laden, somebody's going to say to you, you need to pick some of that fruit, man. It's all going to go right. And they'll come up and they'll talk to you. What do you know about God? And how do I live my life? And how should I serve over here? And they're just pulling this fruit off and they're going, oh, a little sour, but oh no, it's actually kind of sweet. It's pretty good. Put a little salt on it, not sugar, put a little salt on it. Oh, it's so much more flavorful, like a grapefruit. You put sugar on or salt on it instead of sugar. And that's the word of God. All of those things, they're so interwoven like that. So I want to encourage you guys. Be a good fruit tree. Produce that fruit in keeping with righteousness. Make sure you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Make sure you're endeavoring to be inside fellowship. Make sure you're planting his word inside of your heart and inside of your mind. And Lord willing, we will do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's just so rich. The the nuggets that are in there for us to follow so much in one verse or in two verses. Help us, Lord, not to neglect your word. Help us not to neglect fellowship. And help us to be prepared for trials that come as part of this. For we know we cannot be perfected in any other way. Help us to be steadfast, Lord, in our determination to follow after you, just as King David was. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. And everyone said, Amen.